Blog Talk Radio. age that we humans have caused all by ourselves, mostly by our, our, our incessant burning of fossil fuels. This is clearly understood now, but the almighty dollar has proven more powerful than any instinct for self-preservation among humans, as even the leaders of nations have so far done little to curb big oil, which has now become part of the plastic pollution problem as well. Six years ago, Edward Rubin was a university professor of law and political science. I think he still is, but he, like many others of us, was so frustrated by the degradation of Earth he could so clearly see and the fact that no one was doing anything about it. Out of frustration, he wrote a book, a vision of a future that he could see barreling towards us, and it is not pretty. The heat stroke line seems very real to me, and I can be a pretty harsh critic. Professor Rubin, Ed, thanks for joining me to talk about all this. I think your book is very compelling. It's a page-turner, a thriller, an adventure, and an ugly look into the very, very near future. Thanks for having me. Are you there? Yes, I am. Did writing it Hello? Any? Yes. Did writing the book help you any? Um, well, it certainly uh, made me think uh, m- even uh, more seriously about uh, what's uh, waiting for us. Obviously, we don't know. Uh, I presented one vision of the future. Uh, there are many others that are, that are possible. But I think what's clear is that if we don't do something about it and something dramatic, that the future uh, will, will be a negative one, and that our children and our grandchildren are going to be suffer uh, are going to suffer in ways that we really can't uh, even anticipate. So each alternative vision of uh, the possible uh, consequences of what we're doing, I think, is important to bring home to us uh, the uh, uh, really uh, uh, serious possibilities of a genuine capa- uh, uh, catastrophe. And I think we have to conjure with the fact that this will truly affect life in this country. It's not going to be something uh, that we, we can uh, d- dismiss as a, uh, uh, a problem uh, with uh, you know, the tropical world or with poorer nations or anything like that. It will hit home. I'd put your book about 100 years from now. What did you imagine it to be? Yes, uh, about 100 years or a little uh, more than that. I didn't want to date it because I didn't uh, uh, w- want to uh, try to construct an exact uh, uh, chron- chronology, but I was picturing it as uh, uh, the life that my uh, grandchildren or great-grandchildren uh, might be encountering. Uh, probably you're the best one to uh, summarize uh, the, the storyline for us, if, if you'd be kind enough, just a, a quick encapsulation. 
yes, it envisions a future uh, where, uh, because of the stress of climate change, the United States has broken apart uh, into uh, three basically uh, warring states, with the fourth area, uh, the area of the southern United States, ironically the area where uh, I think climate change denial uh, is the strongest, with that area being nearly uninhabitable. And that's the area below the heat stroke line. And the story involves a character uh, and, um, uh, who studies insects, an entomologist. Uh, and uh, the reason for his centrality is that below the heat stroke line, there's been a, uh, there's evolved uh, vicious um, flesh-eating insects that I call biter bugs. And these are really an embodiment of one possible collateral consequence of global warming. He goes down on a mission to, uh, to a diplomatic mission sent by uh, one of those three uh, uh, surviving states to uh, this area, gets captured, uh, and has a series of adventures in these tiny remnants of principalities that exist below the heat stroke line. And I try to portray the desperation of these people uh, the the, uh, the really uh, degeneracy of their political system and uh, 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 the, the, uh, a, a real sense of how the United States might decline and how we might lose the very things that we and specifically climate change deniers treasure most, which is our uh, prosperity uh, and our power. I'd like to talk about that political part uh, because I think you were kind of prescient there, but uh, we'll do that in a little bit. Uh, but but uh, aside from the fact that people had to stay inside, and, and as long as they had air conditioning, uh, a lot of people and families were still leading mostly normal lives. People were still using cars, though most of them were self-driving. <laughs> Uh, even in places yeah, so like I Denver. Wanted, I'm sorry. Go mm-hmm. on. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to connect it uh, with our current life. I wanted to show that life had been degraded, but that uh, it wasn't uh, transformed. I think the problem with a lot of post-apocalyptic science fiction uh, that uh, uh, tries to sort of warn people about things like pandemics or nuclear war or climate change is that if you make uh, the future so different and specifically if you wipe out uh, much of government and much of society and portray a kind of unpopulated world that people move across as if it was a sort of primeval landscape uh, whatever drama you produce you lose the sense of connection you lose the sense of reality and it just becomes a kind of adventure story that could just as well be set in caveman era or or tens of thousands of years in the future or something like that. So I wanted something that was familiar and that showed uh, life going on in somewhat similar ways, but seriously degraded uh, by our um, inability uh, to take control of this impending uh, catastrophe. The country is still there, bureaucracy is still there, law is still there, but everything uh, has been um, much, you know, life is much poorer and the country is much weaker. I, I think you did a good job of that because uh, it, it, it seemed very, very real. Just, just about you know uh, the, having to suffer the consequences of 
of what we are doing now. Even in places like Denver, uh, the outside temperatures were well over 100 degrees on a constant basis uh, without electrical power and constant air conditioning, which seemed to be the key. There could be no survival. And that's part of the irony, of course, is that uh, uh, people, you know, life is fragile because uh, it's not, the environment is hostile. And so it's no longer uh, as benign uh, as, it, as it is now. And so we have to keep on uh, burning fossil fuel because the solution has not been uh, reached to find alternative sources of energy. And so it's not clear whether or not the problem is, go- is go- uh, in the book where the problem is going to get even worse and life will um, be even uh, more degraded uh, than, it, than I depicted at the time. But uh, it's dependent on the very thing uh, that's destroying us because we fail to find an alternative. David Pogue, in his book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, tells people they need to move north. He specifically mentioned, uh, mentions the 42nd parallel which is uh, it's south of uh, well south of which is half of Iowa and Nebraska, all of Illinois and California, even Pennsylvania is below the 42nd parallel. Your heat stroke line is the mark south of which no one can survive in the out of doors. About where did you imagine your line was? Well, it was the Mason-Dixon line basically, and I did that uh, again because I wanted to emphasize the idea that the area of the country that seems most committed uh, to denying climate change and has generated or produced um, the uh, politicians that have blocked uh, uh, our necessary initiatives come from that area. And that, of course, will be the area that will be most heavily impacted by an increase in uh, temperature and uh, will, if climate change continues, be literally uh, uh, uninhabitable uh, without, um, you know, it, it, so, or, or not, not fully uninhabitable. I show a small population remaining there, but uh, where life will be very fragile and extremely unpleasant. And, and these biter bugs that live below the heat stroke line, as I said, are a kind of embodiment of uh, the general uh, destruction of the environment that will um, occur uh, in that area. And so these people are destroying their own states. I mean, I could have depicted... Florida being underwater, for example, which is a consequence that many people are predicting will occur from just a few degrees um, increase in the overall uh, global uh, temperature. I do depict the Mississippi River having turned into a wide bay because of flooding um, along its banks. And these things are actually um, among, you know, realistic um, predictions of what will happen if we get a 10 or 15 meter rise in sea level. Well, if, 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 your, if your Mississippi Gulf uh, idea is reality, then Florida does no longer exist. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but on the political side of things, uh, I, I think you were prescient because it's like you foresaw the American first movement. Uh, this book was before Donald Trump, yet you describe an entire subculture that more or less ascribes to those tenets. Yes, well, I think um, history suggests that one thing that happens when people's country um, dramatically declines is that they develop a kind of maniacal nationalism that no longer connects with reality or has any practical uh, 
uh, consequence, uh, but becomes a kind of obsession. Uh, this is, for example, it's partially based on actual history of what, hap- what happened within Poland when that country was uh, destroyed at the end of the 18th century and divided up among the surrounding powers. And a country that had been uh, very progressive and very tolerant in uh, the Renaissance era uh, developed a a kind of obsessive nationalism uh, as a result of this experience. And that's happened again and again. And so I wanted to suggest that 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 is where American patriotism would lead if we actually suffered this kind of decline to a kind of a um, dysfunctional mania. Tornadoes play a big part in your story. Big tornadoes, regular tornadoes. The folks in Denver all live in specially constructed one-story buildings. I believe you call them cryoplastic or something like that that were meant to withstand these constant tornadoes. So that's another example of uh, the degradation of life. I mean, it would, um, uh, if, uh, and that's certainly another prediction about climate change, if uh, monstrous tornadoes, let's say five times as uh, serious as uh, now afflict us both in terms of uh, magnitude and frequency, would it be, would be moving uh, through uh, the Great Plains and mountain areas of America? Again, it wouldn't uh, entirely destroy life but it would degrade it. It would make it much less pleasant to live in. We, after all, have evolved not only as a species over the long term, but as a civilization within the last few centuries based on a certain type of environment. And we exploit that uh, environment fairly fully. We live um, in almost all the habitable places of the world where people could live and we farm uh, most of the land that's uh, readily um, uh, usable for farms. And so we're, we're you know, using our, our, our existing environment at a fairly um, high level of utilization. And if we degrade that environment, if we, if, if we destroy it, we're going to put enormous stress on ourselves and on the carrying capacity of this planet. And so that's one of the things I was trying to depict. Well, in your future, Canada has become a world power, largely because it's still livable outside. I found it, I found it interesting that uh, Baffin Island, uh, which is uh, part of the Arctic right now, uh, has become almost tropical. Yes, and again, the, the, the point of that wasn't so much to suggest that um, uh, you know, Canada is the place to move but rather to confront us with the possibility that uh, Americans with the possibility that uh, climate change will be uh, so serious that we will no longer be a dominant power, that we will not be able to sustain our current um, uh, political unity and that we will have to um, accept a subordinate uh, status as a uh, country with a uh, less favorable environment than places like Russia or Greenland or Canada. And again, that's to confront uh, the uh, uh, climate change deniers uh, with, with something that I was hoping would um, uh, communicate uh, with them and bring home to them the fact uh, that uh, the things that they really care about are at risk here and that, um, you know, a sort of casual uh, short-term thinking and uh, refusal to accept what everybody who knows anything about this is telling us is going to happen uh, will lead to exactly the results that they don't want.
Yeah. Well, Canada plays a large role in the uh, final outcome of your story, but it is so huge and consequential, we mustn't give away the big finish. But in your in your uh, future, the Earth had reached 10 billion humans before its collapse. I mean, heck, we're at eight right now. Uh, and, and in your story, there were only a few hundred million people left in the world, uh, which which we'd be in a lot less trouble if that were so now. Uh, Southeast Asia and India uh, were barren of humans. And, and as we said, you foresaw the Mississippi Gulf because of the sea rise. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I was trying to uh, portray a world in decline. And uh, part of that was just a novelistic device to focus um, attention on the relationship between the United States and Canada and and the fact that Canada was a dominant power uh, uh, controlling things in the United States. And, you know, some of the action uh, involves uh, Canadian oppression of the United States and uh, the the struggles of these remaining uh, and uh, disempowered uh, um, successor states uh, in what was previously uh, our, our, our nation uh, to, uh, to deal with domination by a foreign power. And, you know, to some extent, the point of that is that we are a dominant power, and if we don't take leadership uh, on the global warming issue, then we are truly oppressing people in the, uh, in, in the rest of the world, that they look at us and they see that we are continuing not only to uh, generate a disproportionate amount of the um, uh, fossil fuel uh, combustion that leads to global warming, that we're, uh, by uh, essentially not taking leadership, we're blocking uh, what would be the necessary collective efforts uh, to deal with this. And so I think they have the, ex- uh, the experience of genuine oppression by the United States. And so what I wanted to convey is what it would feel like for us to be oppressed, for us to have a uh, neighbor to the north that was more powerful than we were in doing things that were um, in its selfish interest uh, 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 and uh, where, uh, you know, life was better there, but in their selfish interest to um, uh, uh, keep the United States um, in a, a subservient and a disadvantageous uh, situation. Again, an experience that Americans have not had uh, for centuries. Uh, but uh, we should take seriously because that's the experience we're imposing on other people. So you're you're just a normal guy. You're 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 a you're a college professor living your life, and uh, you're you're not a scientist or a climatologist or anything like this. But but you are able to see. Six years ago, what is what is happening and what is not happening? <laughs> and out of frustration, you you sat down and and gave all of your time to to writing this this book. If if you were frustrated then, you must be beside yourself by now. Uh, well, I mean, there's there are some uh, suggestions of hope with the new administration but the sense of urgency that I think uh, is necessary and the willingness to really um, rethink uh, the way we live I think is something uh, that we, we still 
have not uh, have not confronted. And uh, you know, we we are heading to disaster e- 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 either uh, with um, total irresponsibility, as we did under the Trump administration, or with a lack of urgency. Uh, and uh, I think there are many things that could be done uh, very quickly uh, that we're simply fail- failing to do. I actually wrote a uh, article uh, in my day job as a um, uh, political scientist about precautions that could have been taken even when we weren't sure that climate change was going to occur that would have been beneficial in the short run and protected us in the long run. We should have been building intelligent homes uh, that uh, save money and save enormous amount of energy, intelligent buildings generally, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. We should have been shifting to clean power uh, that we can generate within our borders and uh, that doesn't pollute the environment uh, like solar and wind. 40 or 50 years ago, we should have been building mass transit, uh, which can only uh, benefit the congestion on our highways 40 and 50 years ago. These are all things that would um, uh, be enormously beneficial in terms of global warming and would also make life better even if global warming hadn't occurred. And we should have done those things. So my sense of frustration is enormous. Uh, and the fact that we're still not doing things like that um, uh, it bewilders me, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I'm another one of those uh, just just a regular guy who uh, uh, I'm not a scientist either, and and uh, had no no uh, experience before in this particular uh, area or field. But it has it has just uh, it is constantly maddening to me, and and uh, that's that's why I'm I'm doing this this series of interviews because it's it's something I can do. You know, like you, you, mm-hmm. you wrote your book because it was something you could do. And, uh, but, but uh, I, I, did you notice that just a couple of days ago, uh, the International Energy Agency said we must stop all fossil fuel development and usage by next year at the latest. The IEA is no green organization. It was created to prop up fossil fuels, and now they say, it has to end right away. Uh, yes, and you mentioned the fact that I am, I, I'm not a scientist. Now, I did have a scientist vet the book to make sure I didn't make uh, any uh, 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 gross errors or say things that um, couldn't happen. So everything in the book is plausible. But I will say that the basic contours of the book, uh, you don't, you know, I didn't need to be a scientist because the consensus of the scientific community is so strong and so clear that it should at this point uh, be apparent to everyone uh, that um, uh, we need to change what we're, we're doing if we're not going to uh, create a, uh, you know, a genuinely catastrophic situation uh, for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Which I, I'm afraid I believe we have already done so. Uh, I, I, I'm one of those people. I'm afraid who, who thinks that for many, for many things, it's already too late. Uh, I, I, you mentioned Florida. I, I'm one of those people who firmly believes that by 2050, by less than 30 years from now, the southern half of Florida will no longer exist. 
Do you yes, have any of those? Amazingly. I'm sorry. I mean, do you do you feel those same things? I don't know enough, actually, to know uh, uh, whether you know how soon uh, these disasters will occur, and whether or not, um, uh, uh, by decisive action, uh, we could, uh, at this point, sort of stop the process uh, in its tracks and possibly even uh, re- reverse it. But I, I, what I am sure of, because this is an absolute consensus is that if we don't take uh, action uh, very shortly, uh, we are going to be in a situation where there will be uh, no turning back. And, you know, this is a situation, unlike some, uh, where you can't undo, uh, as, as just as you're saying, you can't undo things once they've gone to a particular point. I mean, you know, like racial discrimination in America is um, a terrible problem. But if you change the way we're acting, then from then on going forward, uh, you will have solved the problem. This problem, as you point out, uh, will get to a point where it will be um, insoluble. I mean, it may be, uh, it, we may be able to moderate it in the future, but we will not be able to restore our current conditions of, of, of life if we don't take uh, decisive action almost immediately. As you were writing this book, did you have to, how much of it did you have to conjure? How much of it just kind of laid itself before you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So when I started writing it, as you were talking about, um, it was uh, 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 to to serve a purpose. I mean, it was really uh, a a book about the future of climate change that was intended as a warning. As I wrote it, uh, as I started writing it, what suddenly happened is the characters came alive for me. Uh, particularly the main character, but some of the other characters as well. And it became a story as well as a, um, uh, uh, a, a, a sort of uh, uh, ideological uh, ar- ar- argument. And then, you know, the characters took on a life of their own and the story unfolded to me. So, uh, you know, a lot of the book, uh, uh, although the overall structure of the book is driven uh, by this concern about climate change, a lot of uh, the content of the book became uh, really a matter of telling a narrative and uh, making an interesting story with real people who were interacting in what I thought uh, uh, were uh, interesting ways. So, uh, you know, my experience of, of, of writing it was, was uh, really very enjoyable because I came to uh, live with these people and, and, and feel uh, their reality and their... Um, uh, not only their sufferings, but their, you know, their, their hopes and uh, uh, their, their, their interactions. So that part of it was um, a great deal of fun, uh, although the underlying issue uh, still co- uh, causes me the same level of distress as it causes you and I hope any other people. Well, I'm just the, the reason I ask is because I'm I'm always curious about uh, about fiction writers and uh, whether or not as you as you began, did you have, did you have a specific outline uh, in your mind as to where you were going and what was going to happen, or did some of it unfold as you were writing? It absolutely unfolded. Um, I, the, the, the vague idea I had was of, uh, to depict the uh, southern United States as being um, uh, uninhabitable and it was only when I started writing it that I thought, well, I needed to get my main character into this 
uninhabitable, semi-uninhabitable area to uh, really bring the reality home. And once I did that, um, and that's where the action accelerates about a, a quarter of the way through the book after I've established the situation, the backstory, then it sort of grabbed a hold of me. Uh, and uh, I, I became, uh, uh, you know, it sort of carried me along. And at that point, the narrative aspects of it and the drama of it became dominant for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd already established and thought in my mind um, uh, the ideological point, uh, uh, and, and, and that obviously is the frame of the book. But the narrative and the characters absolutely uh, developed as I was writing it and carried me along. At some point, I felt that they were talking to me and they were telling me what was going to happen. One of the uh, one of the interesting uh, points that that I noted uh, was with uh, and, and, and and it was not clear in the book how long it had been since the ten billion human population had been reduced to the seven hundred million that were left across the planet. But uh, life in general, the the uh, the, uh, the, the, the the sacredness of individual life seemed to have dissipated quite a bit. Yes, and that's uh, that's what was one of my main themes, and that plays a large role in the denouement of of, of the book. That if uh, if we had that kind of catastrophe. Uh, well, there, there, there were two things. One uh, is that part of the United States is a dictatorship. And I have uh, serious doubts that we will be able to maintain a democratic uh, na- nation under the kind of stress that climate change uh, is going to uh, I- impose on us. I mean, before uh, the population in tropical regions uh, is wiped out, which is one of the uh, things that I depict in the book, there are likely to be hundreds of millions of uh, refugees uh, from uh, that situation uh, appearing uh, on our shores or, or trying to get into our country. And when you think about the 2 million Syrian refugees, possibly the result of climate change, uh, and the impact they had on, Europe, uh, on European democracies, and to some extent uh, the impact that tiny numbers, relatively small numbers, of uh, refugees have had on politics in the United States, it seems like uh, any uh, large number of uh, refugees sort of pounding on our doors uh, will uh, seriously uh, undermine uh, our ability to maintain a democratic system. So that's one thing uh, that I was trying to portray. And the other thing is when you have uh, catastrophic disasters of that kind, I think it does cheapen human life and thereby undermine our commitment uh, to human dignity and the uh, significance of, uh, of every person. I, I think it clearly uh, will, 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 will have that, uh, that, that effect. And a lot of the denouement of the book is based on the fact that people who aren't intrinsically evil uh, begin to treat human life as something disposable because uh, there has been so much death. So far from uh, regarding the 700 million remaining people as precious because they represent a small minority of uh, the previous population of humanity, uh, it becomes a cheap commodity that you're prepared to dispense with uh, in order to satisfy your own interests. 
Yeah. By the way, you give your readers a bonus. One of the characters in your book writes a short story, and we get to read it in, in its entirety. It's a little science fiction piece and quite compelling in its own right. It's got nothing to do really with the main story, but it showed me at least that you have enormous writing talent and imagination. I don't know where you are in your educational law career, Ed, but you need to write again. You need to write more. Your storytelling is top-notch. Well, thank you very much. I, for um, one, would that, stand in line for your... Well, thank you. Thank you. That, um, that short story was written by one of the characters, and I was trying to uh, show a different way, the sort of more traditional post-apocalyptic um, n- novel of thinking about the future so that it would be a contrast with the, with, with the main story and bring the, my effort at realism in the main story uh, into, uh, 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 into the light by contrasting it with a more traditional uh, uh, sci-fi story. But that, that, that was you know, sort of inspired uh, by the uh, 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 more common approach to post-apocalyptic uh, science, science fiction. And I had great fun writing that as well. Yeah. Well, I, for one, would stand in line for your next book. I hope it will be another view of our possible future, even if it's as bleak as this one. Thank you so much, Professor Rubin, for sharing your book and your thoughts with us. All the best to you going forward. Let's pray that something will soon be done to forestall the future you have foreseen. Thank you very much, Dan. I share that. I share that hope. Okay. This one is worth a read, folks. You can find it at Amazon and other booksellers. The Heatstroke Line by Edward Rubin, published by Sunbury Press. It tells of an easily imaginable future for all of us. It has drama, tension, excitement, and a surprisingly satisfying ending, even though it's hugely cataclysmic. We can only hope that it won't come true, although we continue to barrel in that direction. The human race continues on its suicidal path, which is why this series of interviews has been named Suicide Earth. Except we're not just killing us. <laughs>